Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I was just talking to a colleague at uh, LSE, Deepa Patel, about doing some podcast training. So hopefully in the next month or two, I can learn how to do jingles and all that stuff, which make podcasts sound professional rather than totally amateur like this one. I'm not sure whether it'll make any difference to the traffic but it'll make me feel more like a podcaster, so I suppose that's good. Anyway, on with the show. Um, Four posts this week. The first was the usual links I liked, and there was some really weird and mind-blowing stuff. Uh, A book review about the problem-solving powers of fungi. This is why I love social media. You end up with some really strange stuff in your timeline. Um, And it turns out that fungi are amazing. So I'll just read you the quote. The mycologist, that's somebody who works on fungi, Lynn Boddy, once made a scale model of Britain out of soil, placing blocks of fungus-colonised wood at the points of the major cities. The blocks were sized proportionately to the places they represented. Mycelial networks quickly grew between the blocks and the web they created reproduced the pattern of the UK's motorways. Quote from Lynn Boddy, you could see the M5, the M4, the M1 and the M6. Other researchers have set slime mould loose on tiny scale models of Tokyo with food placed at the major hubs. In a single day, they reproduced the form of the subway system. And on maps of IKEA, they found the exit more efficiently than the scientists who set the task. Slime moulds are so good at this kind of puzzle that researchers are now using them to plan urban transport networks and fire escape routes for large buildings. The thing which really got my attention was that slime mold can find the exits of ikea because i've never been able to find my way around ikea and the uh, you know i pride myself on having been a good parent when my kids were growing up the only time i hit my children uh in you know all those years of parenting was in ikea because i just find it so stressful so the idea that slime mold can deal with ikea really got my attention so i put it in links i liked the second quote, uh, second post of the of the week was a, a rant from me about the UK's aid system. And the UK has announced two big cuts over the last year. First, a big cut based on a what it turns out was an exaggerated projection of the collapse of the economy. Um, so that they, they were going to cut to keep it at 0.7% of gross national income, and then a further cut dropping it from 0.7 to 0.5% of national income, which may well be a breach of the law. We shall see. But anyway, um, I, I sort of tried to get you know, find as much as I could about what the cuts what cuts were happening. And this is, uh, uh, this is the rant that ensued. What is going on with the cuts to the UK's aid budget? Judging from first impressions, the axe is being arbitrarily taken to a lot of really good aid programmes with no overall plan or rationale. But surely that must be wrong. This is still a $10 billion aid budget we're talking about, even after the cuts. Any manager knows that budgets sometimes have to go down, but that can be managed well or done badly. Well, it turns out that the UK system is firmly in group two. And I talked a little bit about what's being cut and the damage that's happening to poor people and communities around the world. But then I thought I'd actually focus on what's been the damage that's been done to the UK. Beyond the obvious damage to poor and vulnerable people around the world who suddenly lose access to food, shelter, family planning or other aid programmes, what is this kind of headline about all these cuts doing to the UK's reputation? This is a big year for UK diplomacy. We're chairing the G7. We're hosting the Climate Change Summit in Glasgow in November. 
At such moments, governments always like to be able to lord their leadership and build their soft power. But how are you going to do that when all the press coverage is about the kind of miserly behaviour displayed by the Treasury towards India when the Treasury insisted that any help for India's COVID disaster be taken out of uh, the aid budget, and that led to a big delay in us being able to help India. Really, really mean, bean-counting, petty behaviour in the middle of a global crisis. As one FCDO, this is the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the new merged uh, department, as one FCDO colleague put it, if you were trying to guarantee a long stream of really bad news, this is how you would do it. Decisions at the top and then drip them out over time. Even Boris Johnson is reported to be having queasy second thoughts about the amount of diplomatic damage that has been done by the aid cuts. There's also Andrew Mitchell, a former boss of DFID, who is um, giving a series of absolutely devastating media interviews. He's got yeah, horrible killer facts like he reckons 100,000 children will die because of the aid, aid, aid cuts. And he's got lots of connections. He was a former whip in the Tory party, lots of connections with Tory backbenchers. And there's also legal advice which suggests that the government acted outside the law when it ditched its policy of spending 0.7% of national income on aid. But I'm also hearing stories of, you know, which no one wants to go public. Everybody seems very terrified in the FCDO. There's lots of you know, inquiries every time there's a leak and this kind of thing. But I'm hearing stories uh, about the damage that's been caused at a national level. Um, this is from a colleague who works closely with UK aid programmes in a number of countries. Nigeria is probably less likely to want to cooperate with UK on things like countering violent extremism or terrorism or to strike a trade deal beneficial to the UK after it feels that the UK has abandoned it in terms of providing previously promised support. It's going to be a lot harder for the UK to claim a seat at the table in donor coordination efforts around humanitarian work in Syria and Palestine after such large cuts in both places. The essential point is that anywhere there's been a big cut, it's going to be a lot harder for the UK ambassador or high commissioner to get meetings, favours, desired action from senior ministers in the country they are stationed in. UK diplomacy relies on that kind of influence and access. So what happens next? I went for some sort of, you know, opt opt optimism of the will at the end of this. It's not too late for the UK government to end the current diplomatic and moral train wreck. Firstly, a face saving exit has become available. Compared with the forecasts in the March budget, the latest data and forecasts suggest that Finance Minister Rishi Sunak will have a lot more money than expected come the autumn. So that clears the way for the UK to say, hey, thanks to our brilliant stewardship of the economy, we are able to restore 0.7. We are able to big up aid in all these important areas. And the obvious time for such an announceable, which is what they call it in Whitehall, is the G7 summit in Cornwall in June. And that could clear the way for a string of initiatives and announcements in the run-up to the Glasgow Climate Summit. So there is a way around this if the, US, if the UK actually cares about its international reputation and wants that cachet of global leadership. Um, let's see what happens. Third post of the week was uh, there's an organisation called Civicus, which is a kind of global network of civil society organisations, CSOs, and it publishes an annual state of civil society report global. You know, look at CSOs globally, state of civil society globally. And I thought this, this year's was really well written and beautifully designed, funky website. Really, you know, have a look just to see how this stuff should be done. I thought it was really good. Um, 
I recommend the overview. After all, that's all anyone ever reads. Um, but this is very good. It's very accessible. Um, and I'll read you a little bit of it. So many states fail the pandemic test. The pandemic offered a stress test for political institutions and most were found wanting. The inadequacy of many systems of healthcare and social support was revealed and the ways in which economies failed to work for many people were once again, again demonstrated. The world was not ready. International cooperation was needed to respond to a global challenge, but was lacking as governments asserted narrow self-interest, birthing the dismal practice of vaccine nationalism. Vast disparities in vaccination rates between economically powerful states and the rest exposed an ugly reality in which the value of a human life depends on the lottery of birthplace. State after state asserted top-down command and control approaches that seemed to show little trust in the wisdom of people and communities. The first instinct of many presidents and prime ministers was to act as though the pandemic was a threat to their power, rolling out well-rehearsed routines of repression. States took on broad emergency powers and at least some clearly used the pandemic as a pretext to introduce rights restrictions that will last long after the crisis has passed. At a time when scrutiny was more difficult, the suspicion was that some political leaders were opportunistically consolidating their power, rushing through repressive measures they had long wanted to unleash. It's a lovely, lovely writing about a very dark and worrying thing. Uh, and then they also look back, because they've now been doing these annual reports for 10 years, so they look back at 10 trends that, that recur over these 10 years of uh, State of Civil Society reports. Um, and I'll just read them out. In, you know, a sustained civics-based crackdown, politics in flux and democracy at risk, ultra-capitalism's impacts and popular rejection of the prevailing economic model, climate change recognised as a crisis, challenging structural exclusion and vindicating differences on grounds of sexuality, for example, the rise of social media and the disinformation economy, rogue states take their models global, beleaguered multilateralism, the reality of conflict and militarization, and newly mobilized people and new civil society forms. I think if you're teaching students or um, you know, otherwise informing people about what's going on in the civil society, globally this is a really good simple well-written accessible introduction so I, I recommend it as a teaching resource apart from anything else and then as a follow-up to that the fourth post of the week was probably one of my favorite contributors to uh from poverty to power for the very selfish reason that there's i barely need to edit a single word tom carruthers from the carnegie endowment in the us he is such a good writer uh, um, and I was on a, web, a webinar with him uh, last week and he gave a really interesting presentation. I just emailed him and said, Tom, can you turn that into a post? And he said, sure, no problem. And it just comes oven ready. In it goes up on the blog. Very happy. And it's about defending civic space. You know, what can international donors, international actors do to defend the kind of thing that was described in the civic re uh, Civicus report, this closing of civic space during and after the pandemic? He says multiple studies of the effects of the pandemic on civil society paint a discouraging picture, the kind I just described. Um, so what can be done? On the multilateral policy plane, several steps are needed. First, as the head of USAID, uh, USAID and Swedish Development Cooperation emphasised recently, now is the time to push all governments to set concrete plans for lifting emergency restrictions on civic freedom when possible. 
replacing early pandemic anything goes attitudes about such measures with a clear insistence on proportionality and reasonableness. So you don't want to let those temporary emergency things become permanent through neglect. Second, civic space defenders should advocate forcefully for commitments on respect for civic space at the cascade of major multilateral summits occurring over the next 12 months. Not just the G7 in Glasgow, but lots of others. uh, they're They're in the blog. Third, concerned public and private actors should fight to shape the narrative on the political lessons of the pandemic, pushing back against claims by China and other authoritarian states that the COVID-19 crisis proved the value of authoritarian control. Smart narrative strategies include highlighting the fact that endemic features of authoritarian governance proved ill-suited to effective pandemic responses wherever they appeared, including denialism, lack of transparency, lack of accountability, and intolerance of a local initiative. So don't buy that, that... a lie that uh, dictatorship and authoritarianism are really good for dealing with a pandemic. Most countries do not behave like China. Most dictatorships do not behave like China. And then at the country level, various new imperatives are present. The pandemic has increased social and political polarisation. Interesting concept, this polarisation in many countries as governments escalate stigmatisation and intolerance to justify or distract from their pandemic shortcomings. So aid providers need to up their game in learning how to help domestic actors push back against polarisation. The pandemic has prompted numerous domestic civic actors to work outside of their traditional boundaries, creating new coalitions between elite groups and grassroots groups to respond to health emergencies. How do aid providers provide support to strengthen uh, those those new groups, those new coalitions. Uh, then there's early in the pandemic, many funders shifted civic support away from advocacy, away from those kind of you know, big shouty campaigns that try and change government policy towards basic health and, and you know, relief in response to the pandemic. You want to move that back, get that balance back between service provision and advocacy in the post-pandemic period enormous uh, sort of turbocharging of corruption in many countries. So how do you support citizens to, which have made people very angry? How do you build that into your program in terms of responding to corruption, supporting anti-corruption movements? Um, and then the social and economic consequences of the pandemic in many countries have fallen much harder on women than men. So now is the time for a major upgrading and support for women's rights groups and efforts to bolster women's political empowerment. I thought that was a really good agenda from Tom Carruthers. Um, So in short, donors and private aid providers need a civic space defence strategy in the emerging post-pandemic context. Couldn't agree more. That's all a lot to take in. Uh, I hope you have a, a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.